And now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes our brother to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you and we give you thanks for your word, and we pray that by it you would illumine our minds today. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might understand the things that we read today. Help me to articulate your word clearly. Deliver us from distraction. Deliver us from error, we pray, and guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Between the years of 1929 and 1952, Russia suffered under the tyranny of the reign of Joseph Stalin. Stalin deliberately created a culture in Russia, a culture of fear and distrust and paranoia among the people of his country. Essentially, he wanted every old loyalty, loyalty to family, loyalty to friends, co-workers, neighbors, certainly loyalty to the church and to the Lord Jesus Christ, every loyalty to be extinguished and replaced by one loyalty, the loyalty to the state, ultimately loyal loyalty to him. Everyone disloyal to the state was a traitor, considered to be less than human and shipped off to the gulag to die. In order to maintain his grip on the minds and the hearts of the people, to strike terror in the hearts of anyone who would dare voice doubts or dare dissent, he instigated distrust between people. Families were urged to report on each other if they noticed in each other any sign of disloyalty to the state. And so what happened was everyone became an informant. Neighbors informed on their neighbors. Workers informed on their bosses and co-workers. Children informed on their parents any sign of disloyalty to the state. Anyone who dared whisper disloyal thoughts was an enemy of the state and anyone who might who, who might even dare to think or to breathe a whisper of a thought uh, was reported this this is how you ensure nothing but allegiance to the state by sowing discord and fear there's one sick bit of propaganda that circulated for years, and even Russians today still know about this. There's the supposedly historic story of a 14-year-old boy who informed 
uh, the, the local authorities informed on his father and on his uncle. His father and his uncle were peasant farmers who were forging documents so that they could hold on to more of the stuff that they grew and, and not send all of it on uh, to be uh, shared by other people. And so this boy, he informed on his father and uncle, and this boy was praised for his loyalty to the state above all other relationships. Of course, later the townspeople killed the boy, and uh, the, the father and the uncle were still shipped off to the gulag. And so I guess everything worked out uh, in this uh, sick, twisted uh, 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 regime. And so the communist regime was held together by mutual surveillance. Everyone looking at each other, not carefully, not looking out for each other, you see, but looking at everyone else suspiciously. Are you with us or are you against us? Are you one of us or are you one of them? Satan loves to sow discord among mankind. He loves to sow division. He started, Satan did it in the garden. He did it between Adam and Eve. He did it between Adam and God. And now he continues to do it. Satan sows fear and mistrust and suspicion. That's why even when there are conspiracies of men and wicked men get together to do evil things, these conspiracies always fall apart. They collapse under their own weight. When, when there are internal power struggles, inevitably, divisiveness, character assassination, no kingdom built upon the foundation of suspicion and fear will stand. No kingdom built on distrust will stand. The kingdom of God, however, is built upon hope. And it's built upon trust in the promises of God. The church is founded upon the faithful one, the loyal one, Jesus. And his people are called to trust. And they are called to faithfulness. And they are called to hope. And we are not called to doubt and fear and suspicion, which all twist and destroy relationships. When no one trusts each other, the community is broken, as it was in the Soviet Union. In fact, Family relationships are still horribly broken today because of those, the, 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 the hangover of fear that was sown under, under the communist uh, regime. Uh, and, and so this is, the work of, this is the work of Satan. This is satanic. There's no question about it. And Satan wants nothing more than for the church to become a broken community of people who doubt each other's identity and doubt each other's loyalty to the Lord Jesus. As Christians over the past 200 years in this American experiment, as, as Christians have drifted from their trust in the church, have, as they failed to submit to her, as they have failed to build her up and pray for her and to live for her as she is the bride of Christ, to love her and glorify her, as they, as they have tried to separate the bride from the groom, as, they, as they've tried to separate the church from Jesus, as they attempt to have an, a, a relationship with the head, Jesus, without a relationship to the body, thus, thus decapitating our, our Christian faith, having a relationship only with the head and not, and not with the body. And on top of this, and, and this is all kind of a series of dominoes that fall, as we, as we disregard the church, we also downplay the efficacy of the sacraments, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which bring us into union with Jesus. 
and renew our covenant with him and also underscore our unity together. We are all baptized. We are all eating at the table together. It is our communion as much as it is, as it is our communion with uh, God the Father and his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so as these things are, are diminished, as, as it is taught that, that the sacraments are just empty symbols, you know, something happens over here with water that has nothing to do with what happens inside. Something happens over here with bread and wine that has nothing to do with your real spiritual life. You see, uh, the, the result of this teaching over the centuries uh, in, in mainstream evangelicalism is that what we have done is we have traded the public, open, concrete, objective power and presence of the church and her sacraments we have, we have thrown away that inheritance and we've traded it for a mess of pottage, which is individual, invisible, subjective, relativistic religious experiences, which have no commonality, which have no unity, which have no power to bring us together, which have, have no power before the world to say, yeah, these people are all together and all one. So, so we come to the place now where not only do we not feel comfortable saying with any authority whether anyone else is a Christian. You know, I, 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 maybe, maybe not. I hope they're a Christian. Sometimes in, in times of dark doubt, we're not even sure that we're a Christian. If our trust is located in an experience rather than in God's promises expressed through the gospel, signed and sealed by the sacraments, the trust that in baptism God has declared objectively that you belong to me and I love you and I am well pleased in you. You are my son, you are my daughter. Without that trust, if our trust is in the experience alone, it's very easy to doubt ourselves. Did you really mean it when you said, I believe in you, Lord? Did you really mean it when you said, forgive me of my sins? Did you really mean it? How do you know? How do you know that you know? How do you know that you know that you know? It's a rabbit hole that has no bottom. There's no end to the self-doubt. I remember in my teens and early 20s, I was on nothing other than a spiritual roller coaster. <laughs> you know, you kind of, you, you, you go to church and a sermon's kind of uplifting, you feel good, and then, and then you sin, and then you mess up, and then you go into the spiral of doubt and fear and uh, uh, lack of self-confidence, you know? But then when you go to a youth rally or go to a youth camp, and that just kind of lights the fire again, and here you are, yeah, I know that I belong to Jesus. And then something would happen to just smash that to pieces, and you wonder, you know, do I even deserve to live? And then you go to a DC Talk concert or, or Carmen, and everything's new again and everything's great, but there's no stability. There's no objectivity. There's no lasting confidence in my standing and where I am in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. If it's all built on the very shaky foundation of my own experience. And you have what you end up having is many little conversion experiences where you get to a point like, I'm not sure if it was that one when I was 12 or that one when I was 24. I'm not sure when it, which one it was, you know, but I, I'm pretty sure this is the real one. I'm pretty sure this is the real time. You see, if you cannot have rest and you cannot have peace in your own standing with God, how can you have 
any confidence that anyone else is a genuine believer. If our standing with God rests upon our having a certain kind of experience, how can you tell anyone else is, a, is, is truly a believer, not knowing whether or not their experience was genuine? How can you not call their faith into question? How can you not call your spouse's faith into question and your children's faith into question? And in doing that, how can you not sow suspicion and division? Oh, he's obviously not a Christian. He rides a motorcycle. Direct quote. I've heard that one, by the way. My wife can uh, attest to that one. She knows what I'm talking about. How, he's obviously not a Christian, right? Thanks be to God that he didn't leave us to sort through this excruciatingly complicated subjective set of criteria. In the last few weeks, we've seen that God saves a people. He has always saved a people. He has always worked through a people. And he has established a covenant relationship with the people that he is saving. That relationship is called, that relationship is called a covenant. We, we are admitted to that covenant by a sacrament. And we renew and we reaffirm that covenant by the sacrament of, of communion. This is all very public. This is all very open. This is all very objective. You are baptized and you are faithful to the covenant. Or you're, you're not a baptized faithful member of the covenant. And then there are those who, that we'll talk about in a few minutes, those who have been baptized, who are publicly, visibly admitted to the covenant, and then fail to, to persevere in faith. They fail to be faithful to the Lord Jesus, and then we must put them outside of the covenant. And there's a category for them as well. But covenant membership is never based on some subjective, internal, personal experience. Covenant membership is objective external and communal membership in a saved community membership in the community of life in the community of salvation is not simply about getting something inside of you called grace it's not about getting something inside of you called salvation have you got your salvation card do you have it on you today or do you leave it at home you got it with you do you leave it in the car where is it is it something that we get inside of us or you see it, it's, it's not that, it's about you being in union with the elect one. It's about you being in relationship with the faithful one. It's, it's about you being found in him. Not, not so much about something being imparted in you, but that you are in him. As Paul speaks about this in Ephesians, read the first chapter of Ephesians. He says it over and over. We have redemption in him. God the Father chose us in him. He made us accepted in the beloved one. So, so salvation is less about getting something in us and more about us being found in him and in his body, which is the church. And, and this, the first time I thought about this, it, it just turned my mind inside out to think that there is an actual, visible, earthly community which is addressed as the people of God. In the scriptures, that these are the people of God. And we're not going to shy away. We're not going to put a little asterisk there. We're not going to put a footnote and say, well, you know, we have doubts about some of them. Uh, but we can, we just, we're going to be charitable and say, well, these are the people of God. There is an actual visible earthly community which is addressed as the people of God, the body of Christ, 
to whom God has committed the entire work of salvation on earth. And how do the scriptures speak about this body? Let's look for just a few moments at how the apostle Paul spoke to the church at, at Corinth. You remember the church at Corinth, right? Every, everyone who's read the scriptures knows what's going on in this church. Whatever your definition of a perfect church is, the church at Corinth was about as far away from that as, as you can imagine. What was the church at Corinth like? They were contentious. They were infantile. They were taking each other to court. They were tolerating adultery. They were tolerating fornication. They were, there, there were allegations of idol worship. They abused the Lord's Supper. They pridefully mishandled the gifts of the Holy Spirit and perhaps many other things that, that Paul doesn't share with us, and that's just in 1 Corinthians. They were not, in this church, a model of perfect faithfulness. Now, we might raise all kinds of questions about their integrity and their maturity, but one thing Paul does not do in 1 Corinthians is call into question their standing before God as saints, as beloved of God in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not up for debate. They are a church and thus they are saints. I read just uh, the first few verses and so you've heard some of them already, but listen to what Paul does throughout this letter. And, uh, uh, if, if you want a better treatment of this, uh, my uh, pastor and father in the faith, Steve Wilkins does a great job in his paper, Covenant, Baptism, and Salvation, where he just, he drills down into uh, 1 Corinthians and shows you Paul's treatment of the church. But we're just going to skim over the top of that today, and I'm, I'm borrowing a few of these things from him. Uh, so in, in uh, first, cha first chapter of Corinthians 1, verse 2, he says, and this is Paul, again, just to reset, Paul, speaking about the church in Corinth, right? He says they are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Chapter 1, verse 4. They have been given the grace of God by Christ. Chapter 1, verse 5. They have been enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge. Chapter 1, verse 7 through 8. They will be confirmed to the end blameless in the day of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 9, they have been called into fellowship of Christ, into the fellowship of Christ by God. Uh, chapter 1, verse 30 through 31, he says, you are in Christ Jesus, and because of this, you share in his wisdom, his righteousness, his sanctification and redemption. Chapter 2, verse 14, they have received the Holy Spirit so that they might know the things that have been given to them by God. He says in verse 15, 16, you have the mind of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, he says, you are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Chapter 3, 21 through 23, all things belong to you because you belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to God. Chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Paul says, because of my ministry to you, you have been born through the gospel. Chapter 5, verse 7, Christ has been sanctified for you. Chapter six, uh, I'm sorry, Christ has been uh, sacrificed for you. I'm sorry. Chapter six, verse nine, you have been washed, which means you have been sanctified and you have been justified in the name of Jesus and by the spirit of God. Chapter six, verse 14, you will be raised up just as God raised up Jesus. Verse 19 of the same chapter, you have been bought with a price. 
In chapter 10, he goes into this. He says, just like in the, the Israelites in the wilderness, you follow the rock who is Christ. You are in fellowship with God. But, he says, just as God was not pleased with the generation who died in the wilderness, so must you not imitate them. He says, those things uh, were written for your instruction so that you won't repeat the same error. Don't break the covenant. Don't worship idols. Don't tempt Christ, he says. He says, don't murmur. That generation was baptized in the Red Sea. They were watered by the rock. They were fed by heavenly bread, and yet a number of them were destroyed. So, so here Paul is sounding a clear warning about the present path that the Corinthians are following, but it's a warning based on their standing. We'll come back to this in just a moment. In chapter 12, verse 13 and 27, they have been baptized into one body by the Spirit. They are the body of Christ. And in chapter 15, verse 3, he says, Christ died for your sins. Now, when you, when you pull all that together, and if you would, would spend time just carefully observing how Paul addresses this church, you might ask, how could Paul make all these bold declarations about these very troubled people in Corinth? Did he have some special apostolic insight? Did he have some revelation by the Spirit of God into the inner workings of their hearts? Or is, is he just allowing the judgment of charity, just hoping for the best? Could we edit this and say, you know, what really he's saying is, I, I hope you have received grace. I hope you have been sanctified. I hope you are a saint. I'm crossing my fingers and I'm hoping for the best. Really, that's all I can do is hope. Or does he say all of these things in confidence because they are members of the covenant, because they are the covenant people. And this is how you talk about covenant people. This is how you boldly talk about people who are united to Jesus in their baptisms. Following Paul's example then, we are to consider all baptized members of the body of Christ to be his people. They are heirs of his promises. They're heirs of all the blessings and benefits of the covenant. At the same time, we call them to be faithful to that covenant. When they stray, we correct them. We call them back to their baptism. And if they continue in their rebellion, then the Lord Jesus has given us the keys to the kingdom. And the church is to exercise her authority that, that he's given her and, and put them outside of the community. You see, the church is to patiently, carefully, compassionately call the covenant breaker to repentance. And if they will not submit and if they will not repent, then the church must publicly, objectively put them outside of the covenant. And this is another failure of modern evangelicalism is our failure to discipline anybody for anything ever. And so we have no immune system. We, we have no walls. We have no, we, we have no, we, we, we're, a, we're a fortress without walls where just everything filters in and everything filters out and nobody really knows where they stand and nobody knows whether they belong or not. And what we have is endless doubt and endless fear and anxiety about where we stand. Now, now we have this understanding that no, we, we have a public, visible, objective, external covenant that you're either part of it or you're not. And for you and me, as unthinkable as it is to us, that one would walk away from the covenant, that they would walk away from life, as, as hard as that is for you and I to think about, apostasy 
leaving the faith is a reality that the scriptures speak of. It's not some hypothetical situation, but it's a very real possibility if you ignore the warnings of scripture and if you fail to abide in the faith. Now, whenever we start to talk about apostasy, and I'm going to say something like this a couple of times, because uh, when we talk about the reality of apostasy, there's always at least one person who becomes very anxious and says, what if I fall away? What if I mess up and I sin and I just find myself outside of the covenant one day? Uh, What if I wake up tomorrow and I find myself harboring all kinds of sinful attitudes and I find it hard to believe and I'm struggling with my faith? Am I an apostate? Have I abandoned the faith? Is then eternal life really in my hands after all? Is it really up to me after all? Of course not. And I want you, I want you to hear me say emphatically, absolutely not. Well, let's work through this together. Remember the illustration I used last week of the marriage covenant? I want to take that a little bit further. Covenants are real relationships. Your covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ, His Father, and the Holy Spirit. This is a real covenant. It's a real relationship. Uh, covenants are not these abstract, you know, uh, formulas. Covenants are relationships. Your marriage is a covenant. You made vows. You made promises to, to be faithful to each other. You have obligations and you have responsibilities within that covenant. You don't have any right to redefine that covenant or redefine the, the vows or the obligations or responsibilities or blessings. Your marriage is a covenant. And if I ask you, do you plan to be married for the rest of your life? You would say, sure, I do. I, I want to be. Is your faithfulness and is your love toward your spouse completely in your hands? Is it all up to you? No. I mean, I need God's grace every single day. I depend upon God to correct me and strengthen me and fill me with his spirit so that I can love my wife the way she needs to be loved. The only reason I can love her is because he loved me first and he gives me all kinds of things I don't deserve, including her. Are you planning to sin against the marriage covenant? Are you planning to? No, I can't, I can't imagine it. Okay, is it possible to sin against your wife in such a way that you could end up not married and outside the marriage covenant? Is, just, is it possible that you could sin against the covenant that way? Yes, that is a possibility. Is it likely? Better yet, here's a better way of asking that question. Is it something that's gonna happen on accident? Are you going to wake up one day and find yourself just out of love and not married? You're like, oh, I don't know what happened. What what happened? Uh, Or would you say, you know what, if I'm going to end up not married and it's my fault, if if I break the covenant, you know, I'm going to have to blow through a whole bunch of stop signs. I'm going to have to blow through a whole lot of warnings. I'm going to have to repeatedly and boldly sin against my marriage high-handedly, and I'm going to refuse to repent. That's what breaks a covenant. High-handed, stiff-necked refusal to repent and change your covenant-breaking ways. That's what breaks a marriage covenant. And that's what breaks your covenant with the body of Christ. Now, now, if you were to do that, if you were to high-handedly, with a stiff neck, blow through all kinds of stop signs, and we're all coming alongside of you, and we're all praying for you, and we're all grabbing you by the arm and grabbing you by the neck and saying, man, you got to straighten up. You got to do better. What's going on here? 
and you still sin against the, the marriage, you still break the covenant. After that's all over with, do we all shake our heads and say, well, you know what? I guess he never was a husband to begin with. You know, I kind of had my doubts that he wasn't really changed on the inside when he said his vows. That just proves it. He never was a husband. Do we say that? Does anybody talk that way? Nobody talks that way. We never, no, he was a husband. That's why this is so terrible. That's why it's so horrific. That's why it's so tragic. It's because he was a husband. And Jesus talks this way in John 15. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who bides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. I want to say that again. For without me, you can do nothing. Now, what can we say? Uh, 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 whatever, whatever Jesus says next, it's not works righteousness it's not legalism. It's not a denial of election. It's not a denial of grace. Without Jesus, you can do nothing. What can you do without Jesus? What can you do without Jesus? Nothing. Okay, got it. Just want to be sure. Every once in a while, I wonder, are they awake? Uh, so without Jesus, you can do nothing. So whatever Jesus says next, I mean, that's grace, y'all, right? Right? That's pure undeserved, unmerited grace. So whatever Jesus says next is not a denial of that. Jesus, do, Jesus doesn't contradict himself. But he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. You got that? If you don't abide in the vine, you're cast out as a branch. And you say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. I mean, if, if you get broken off and that just proves you never were really part of the vine to begin with. No, 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 no. <laughs> Jesus says you were a branch. He didn't say you're a Walmart bag that just blew along and got caught up in the branches and got pulled out. He says you're a branch. And this is the tragedy, is it? Isn't it? This is, this is why it's so horrific. This is why apostasy is, is so uh, uh, utterly sickening. It's because it's a branch. It's the branch that gets cut off and thrown into the fire. So is that works righteousness? No, Jesus says in the next verse, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So will you be my disciples? What, what Jesus is talking about and what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians in comparing the church to Israel, what he's talking about is the mystery of apostasy. And it is a mystery. We don't know why it happens. We don't know God's purposes in allowing it. And yet we need to be able to speak the way the scriptures speak. We need to be able to speak the way the Savior speaks. And we need to say, God is sovereign. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And at the same time, there are people who are baptized, who are united to Christ in baptism, who have shared in all the blessings and benefits of the covenant, who because of their high-handed, stiff-necked sin and their refusal to repent, end up outside the covenant and cut off from those blessings and cut off from life and cut off from eternal communion and joy with the Savior. Do we have any examples of this in Scripture? Well, we have a couple. How about King Saul? King Saul was anointed by Samuel. The scriptures say the spirit of Yahweh came upon him. The scriptures say he prophesied 
and he was turned into another man. That's a direct quote from 1 Samuel. It also says God gave him another heart. Saul is the only man in the book of Samuel who raises faithful sons. Eli doesn't have faithful sons. Samuel doesn't have faithful sons. David has a house full of hellions. Saul has faithful boys. And yet with all that he has going for him, Saul resists the spirit of God. Saul stokes the fires of rage in his heart against God's servant David. Saul flirts with witchcraft and necromancy. And after correction and after correction and after calls to repentance through God's servant uh, Samuel, he refuses to submit to reason. He refuses to repent and God removes his Holy Spirit from him. Wait, does that mean God can remove his Holy Spirit from me? Well, are you going to hate God's servants? Are you going to play with witchcraft? Are you going to blow through every stop sign and every warning to repent? No, you're not going to do that? Well, then no, God is not going to treat you like Saul. But he did treat Saul like Saul. And we need to be able to say that. <laughs> we need to be able to say what the scriptures say. Judas is another example. When Judas, uh, I'm sorry, when Jesus sent out the 12 to preach the gospel and heal the sick, Judas was among the ones Jesus sent out. Uh, Judas presumably worked miracles. Judas was one of the new symbolic tribal heads of Israel. Judas lived, ate, slept, suffered right along the Lord Jesus and the other apostles. Did Judas abide in the vine? No, he did not. He was a branch that was cut off the vine and thrown into the fire. Could I end up like Judas? Well, do you intend to betray the Lord Jesus? If I tell you, and we all tell you, brother, sister, what you're doing, you have to stop. Your actions and your words are betraying the Lord Jesus. Would that shock you into repentance? Or would you stiffen your neck? Would you stop and confess your sins or would you keep right on? Would you keep right on? Or would you stop? Would you stop? Yeah, okay. Then you're not gonna end up like Judas. But the fact remains that there are people who do behave this way. And sadly and horrifically, there are people who do end up like Judas. And we have to have a category for them. And we have to understand what is happening. When we think about God's sovereignty as it relates to salvation in this, in this subject, it seems evident to me that God from all eternity past has loved an innumerable host. Billions upon billions upon billions upon bazillions of people he has loved from all eternity past. And he's graciously drawn these people to himself. He's joined these people to his son. He has been gracious to them and he has given them his life, which they could never in a trillion years earn on their own or merit or achieve. And he preserves them to eternal life. And to speak the way that Paul spoke, I have no doubt that I'm in that number, and I have no doubt that you're in that number. I have no reason to doubt that you're not in that number. There are also some who, for whatever reason, that God has not revealed to us, a much smaller number of those who he has allowed to do exactly what they wanna do. He has allowed them to love themselves more than God. He has allowed them to hate himself. God has allowed them to hate his son and hate his law and go right on hating him through all eternity. They never enter his covenant. That's a mystery too. Unbelief is a mystery, just as much as apostasy is a mystery. It's a mystery. Unbelief is real and tragic. We don't have all the answers there. God hasn't revealed his purposes to us. Then there's this margin, a few. 
who pass through the covenant, who within God's sovereign will and decree, there are these few, this thread, who come into contact with life and salvation. And they're joined with us. And for whatever reason, they don't stick. They're, they're like the seed sown in the rocky soil. It, it springs up, but then it withers in the sun. The branches that get cut off and thrown into the fire. Again, we don't know why. And, and we can't draw a diagram. We don't know how this works, but we know when it happens. And we know when we see it. That this person is not behaving like a member of the covenant. And if they're going to act this way, we have to be accountable to God because, because he has given us this duty to not let them keep up the charade. We don't, we don't let them keep one foot in the covenant and one foot in the world. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to everybody else. We're not going to let this happen. We're going to put you outside the covenant so that you feel the full effects of being removed from the vine. So that you see, and we pray, God, we pray that you come back. We pray that God will be merciful to you and save you. and We want you back, but we cannot let you live with the charade. We cannot let you play like this. And, and so we have that category as well. By God's design, there are those. Um, when considering these things, always remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. What, what does that say? The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to God. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. It's not up to you and me to figure out God's decrees. He hasn't shown those to us. Who has he elected? Who has he left alone? What unseen work is he doing in the hearts and lives of men? He hasn't revealed those things to us. So they're a secret and they belong to God. What has he revealed to us? Well, he's revealed the covenant to us. That's what we have. We have the covenant and, and it's on the basis of the covenant that we relate to each other. It's on the basis of the covenant that we trust each other, that we exhort each other, that we encourage each other, that we correct each other. So then people of God, I don't have to look around the church and wonder uh, who's really a Christian and who's not a Christian. It isn't up to me to decide whether or not you are, oh, they're obviously elect. Oh, they're obviously not elect. That's not my jurisdiction. What have I been given? God hasn't revealed his, his decrees to me. What do I have? I've got water. I've got bread. I've got wine. That's what I've got. I've got faithfulness to the body of Christ. Are you baptized? Have you been marked by water in the name of the Trinity? Do you come to his table? Do you repent of your sins? Are you, in summary, are you abiding in the vine? Are you walking in faithfulness? Then I reckon you're a child of God. Yes, you are. You're a saint. You belong to Jesus and his people. It's not my place to doubt your salvation or to continually provoke you to doubt your salvation, to drive you to doubt every Lord's day to say, oh, do I really trust? Do I really believe that I believe that I believe that I believe? My job is to do what the apostle Paul did with the church at Corinth, and that is to encourage your belief, to establish you in the faith, by saying the things to you that you can say of all covenant members, you are saints, you are sanctified, you are justified. Jesus died to secure your salvation. You are washed. You are holy. You are saints. That is my job.
And even when we read things in the scriptures like Hebrews 6 that, that has all kinds of connections to what I'm talking about today, we're going to have no time to talk about it. So we'll have to do that someday. Or, or like 1 Corinthians 9 that I just briefly alluded to where Paul says, um, I, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection lest when I preach to others, I myself should become a castaway. Even Paul knew I've got I've to I've be faithful. I've got to abide in the vine. When we read these things, when we're told about the reality of apostasy and we hear the warnings against falling away, people, folks, brothers and sisters, that's not, that's not an impetus to worry. That's not a cause for fear. That's not God's way of keeping us looking over our shoulder and wondering, oh, where do I stand? Maybe I am like Saul. Maybe I am like Judas. That's not, that's not why we have this information. God is not a tyrant who plays with us. This doesn't take away our assurance, much the opposite. By emphasizing the necessity of perseverance in the faith, it grounds our assurance in the work of Jesus. He is the faithful one. I'm, <laughs> I'm not the faithful one here. In this relationship, I'm not the faithful one. He is the faithful one. Look to him, keep your eyes on Jesus and his work and keep trusting. When you sin, repent and keep trusting. Don't rely on yourself. Don't rely on your own experiences. Don't rely on your own feelings, which are mercurial and fleeting. Self-reliance is deadly. Put your confidence in the Lord Jesus. Those who do this, who put their confidence in Jesus, have every reason to believe that he is going to keep his promises to them. You keep your confidence in Jesus and you have every reason to believe that he will keep his promises to you. You have no reason for doubt. You can have complete confidence in your standing in him. Every blessing in life, every blessing of the covenant is found in Christ alone. So trust in him, obey what he says. And you never have any worry to wonder about where you stand with him. Abide in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for his work that secures us in your salvation. We thank you that you have joined us to the covenant community of life. And in this life, we have all the blessings, all the promises. They're ours. They belong to us. Secure us in this. And we pray for those who we know and can name and, and have, have loved, who have walked away from this community of life. We pray that that's not the end of their story, but that you would call them back, bring them back to yourself as you are working in their life. May it just be a, a, a brief, momentary, uh, ugly chapter of a bigger story that's glorious and wonderful and full of light. So Father, we pray that you would guide us all and our children through our whole lives to abide in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.